That's just the way it is and the way it has always been. That is not one of my favorite aphorisms. Maybe sometimes it's intended to mean accept what you can't change to encourage letting go of something as a way of reducing stress. But mostly, I think of it as a way to stay stuck, stick your head in the sand, and avoid moving forward and accepting change. Clearly, the division of dentistry from medicine is something that should have been changed long ago, if not from the very beginning. Dentistry as a practice has less and less to do with sheer physical mechanics when people take good care of their teeth, and more to do with general health. Okay, and with cosmetic desires. But just carrying on as if the two are totally different entities does not make sense anymore, except as a way for people in the profession to make more money by separating out the care. Why shouldn't you be able to get help for dental emergencies in an ER or at urgent care? Just a short personal story, I took my 95-year-old father to an ER in Toronto because he had excruciating tooth pain and insisted on going. The dentist who had seen him earlier told him to come back on Monday, and he would take care of things. Of course, this was on a Friday, so he would have had to spend the entire weekend in pain. So I bundled the frail old man into his parka on a 60-degree day and wheeled him from the taxi into the ER. There, a dental resident took x-rays, saw the tooth that was causing the pain, pulled it, put in a few stitches, gave him some antibiotics, apologized for the cost, and charged my credit card $225 Canadian for the entire visit. Pain gone from my father and little pain on my pocketbook. My point, there are other ways of doing things, and sometimes we should do them differently. So today, readings on dentistry and teeth, starting with why dentistry is separate from medicine. This was written by Julie Beck for The Atlantic and published on March 9th, 2017. Doctors are doctors and dentists are dentists, and never the twain shall meet. Whether you have health insurance is one thing, whether you have dental insurance is another. Your doctor doesn't ask you if you're flossing, and your dentist doesn't ask you if you're exercising. In America, we treat the mouth separately from the rest of the body, a bizarre situation that Mary Otto explores in her new book, Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. Specializing in one part of the body isn't what's weird. It would be one thing if dentists were like dermatologists or cardiologists, the weird thing is that oral care is divorced from medicine's education system, physician networks, medical records, and payment systems, so that a dentist is not just a special kind of doctor, but another profession entirely. But the body didn't sign on for this arrangement, and teeth don't know that they're supposed to keep their problems confined to the mouth. This separation leads to real consequences. Dental insurance is often even harder to get than health insurance, which is not known for being a cakewalk, and dental problems left untreated worsen and sometimes kill. Anchoring Otto's book is the story of Diamante Driver, a 12-year-old boy from Maryland who died from an untreated tooth infection that spread to his brain. His family did not have dental benefits, and he ended up being rushed to the hospital for emergency brain surgery, which wasn't enough to save him. I spoke with Otto about how the dentistry-medicine divide came to be, why it's stuck around, and what its consequences have been. 
A lightly edited and condensed transcript of our conversation is below. Julie Beck, or JB. Let's go back to the origin of how dentistry and medicine became separate in the first place. It's something we take for granted now, right? But it's actually really weird. Was there ever a time when dental care was integrated with medical care? Mary Otto, or MO. It stayed generally separate. Taking care of the teeth became kind of a trade. In the barber-surgeon days, dentist skills were among one of the many personal services that barber-surgeons provided, like leaching and cupping and tooth extractions. They approached it as a mechanical challenge to repair and extract teeth. Barber surgery was practiced in the very early part of our country's history. And Paul Revere was a denturist. He was a jeweler, and he made dentures too. But the dental profession really became a profession in 1840 in Baltimore. That was when the first dental college in the world was opened, I found out. And that was thanks to the efforts of a couple of dentists who were kind of self-trained. Their names were Chapin Harris and Horace Hayden. They approached the physicians at the College of Medicine at the University of Maryland in Baltimore with the idea of adding dental instruction to the medical course there, because they really believed that dentistry was more than a mechanical challenge, that it deserved status as a profession and a course of study and licensing and peer-reviewed scientific consideration. But the physicians, the story goes, rejected their proposal and said the subject of dentistry was of little consequence. That event is remembered as the historic rebuff. It's still talked about sometimes. Not a lot, but it's seen as a symbolic event and it's continued to define the relationships between medical and dental education and medical and dental healthcare systems in funny ways. Dentists still drill and fill teeth and physicians still look at the body from the tonsils south. Medical and dental education is still provided separately almost everywhere in this country, and our two systems have grown up to provide care separately, too. Beck. It seems like since the historic rebuff, dentists have really wanted to stay separate. Why is that, do you think? Otto. People have raised questions about the system over the years, and they've called for reforms periodically. Nearly a century ago, in the 1920s, this biological chemist named William Geis was a kind of prophet. He visited every dental school in the country and in Canada for the Carnegie Foundation for this big report, and he called for dentistry to be considered an essential part of the healthcare system. He said, dentistry can no longer be accepted as a mere tooth technology. He wanted oral health and overall health to be integrated into the same system, but organized dentistry fought to keep dental schools separate. Dentists emerged as defenders of the professional autonomy and professional independence of the private practice system that we have here. David Satcher, the former Surgeon General, he kind of said the same thing when he issued this Oral Health in America report in, 20, in 2000. He said, we must recognize that oral health and general health are inseparable. And that, too, was a kind of challenge. And it seems like things are changing, but very slowly. Beck. So you think the reason they wanted to stay separate was really just a matter of professional independence? Otto. Yeah, it's a marketplace issue. It's a formidable thing, professional autonomy. Beck. It's interesting to hear this separation traced back to one moment, because it's shaped so many things. Insurance, access to care, all these things. Can you give an overview of what the effects have been of carving dentistry out of medicine? Otto. One of the most dramatic examples is that more than a million people a year go to emergency rooms with dental problems. Not like they've had a car accident, 
but like a toothache or some kind of problem you could treat in a dental office. It costs the system more than a billion dollars a year for these visits, and the patients very seldom get the kind of dental care they need for their underlying dental problems because dentists don't work in emergency rooms very often. The patient gets maybe a prescription for an antibiotic and a pain medicine and is told to go visit his or her dentist. But a lot of these patients don't have dentists. So there's this dramatic reminder here that your oral health is part of your overall health that drives you to the emergency room, but you get to this gap where there's no care. There's also the fact that our medical records and our dental records are kept separately. Dentistry has treatment codes, but it doesn't really have a commonly accepted diagnostic code language, which makes it hard to integrate medical and dental records, and harder to do research on the commonalities between oral health and overall health. One dental researcher said at a meeting I was at, Back in the days of the bubonic plague, medicine captured why people die. We don't capture why teeth die. There's this gap in the way we understand oral diseases and the way we approach tooth decay. We still approach it like it's a surgical problem that needs to be fixed, rather than a disease that needs to be prevented and treated. And we see tooth decay through a moral lens, almost. We judge people who have oral disease as moral failures, rather than people who are suffering from a disease. Back. Insurance is all separated out as well, and a lot of times it's op optional. How politically did dental care come to be seen as optional? Otto. There were discussions all through the 20th century, periodically, about this subject. Organized dentistry, like organized medicine, fought nationalized health care on a lot of fronts and testified against the practicality of extending benefits to everyone in the country. And all the health care programs that we've come up with as a nation have on some level or another left oral health out, or given it sort of an auxiliary status as a fringe benefit. Private insurance has also treated it that way. Beck. It's interesting. On one hand, dental care is treated as optional, but on the other hand, as you note in the book, there's this social pressure to have perfect teeth, especially in America, especially among the rich. And so there's a lot of money to be made in cosmetic dentistry. Do you think that social pressure to have perfect teeth is kind of exacerbating the inequality? Otto. I think on some level it must. We do put so much emphasis on perfect smiles, and there's a lot of money to be made in that field. One dentist I talked to as I was working on this project said, nobody wants to do the low-end stuff anymore. Of course, there's a lot more money to be made with some of these really high-end procedures, but on the other hand, there's this vast need for just basic, basic care. A third of the country faces barriers in getting just the most routine, preventive, and restorative procedures that can help pe keep people healthy. Beck. I wonder if the value put on that perfect Hollywood smile is in part because so many people don't have access to dental care. So perfect teeth are a very clear way of signaling your wealth, more clear than if everyone had access to good care and had decent teeth. Otto. It could be. It's very interesting. This whole perfect American smile did have its origins in Depression-era Hollywood. Filmed movies were still pretty new at that point. There was this young dentist named Charles Pincus who had this dental office that opened on Hollywood and Vine, and he went to the movies, too. 
and he saw these movie actors who didn't have perfect teeth up on the silver screen, like James Dean, who actually grew up on a farm and had dentures, and Judy Garland and Shirley Temple. He started working with the studios. He created these little snap-on veneers for Shirley Temple, so we never saw her lose her baby teeth. Over all the years, she had a perfect little set of pearly whites. But you're right, there's this kind of feast and famine aspect to this that's striking. They call the top front six teeth the social six, and the perfect set of veneers for these front six teeth are not just a status symbol here in this country, they're sought around the world as a marker of success. Back. I guess partially because of this market for cosmetic dentistry, dentists tend to cluster in rich areas, and there are often shortages in rural areas or poorer areas. But at the same time, you write about a lot of instances where dentists were really resistant to allowing anyone else to provide that preventive care, like training hygienists to do cleanings in schools. Why is that so controversial? Otto. There's been a long history of that, and it really came home to me with some of the stories I heard, like the story of Tammy Bird, this dental hygienist in South Carolina. There's about a quarter million children living in the rural areas of the state who weren't getting care, and she and some other dental hygienists fought to get the law changed so they could go out and see children without being first examined by a dentist. The Dental Association just fought back. They got an emergency regulation passed to stop her from doing her work, and finally the Federal Trade Commission came in and took her case and won it for her in the interest of getting economical preventive care to all these children who lacked it. But yeah, there's this marketplace issue. Private organized dentistry protects the marketplace for care and the power of private practitioners to provide it, but that leaves a lot of people out. Stories like the battle of this dental hygienist in South Carolina, or the battle that's going on over these mid-level providers called dental therapists in a number of states, really illustrate how fiercely that terrain is protected. Organized dentistry continues to say the current supply of dentists can meet the need that if the system paid more for the care, more providers would locate in these poorer areas. That we Americans need to value our care more and go out and find care more aggressively. They see the fault as being with society at large. Beck. This opposition to hygienists stepping up and filling that role, does that have anything to do with the fact that hygienists are most likely women? You quoted some old-timey dentists who were like, oh yes, the best assistant for a dentist is a woman because she won't be ambitious and take over our patients. And it kind of sounds like that attitude is still around in some ways. Otto. You could say that there might be a sense of that still. There's certainly a deep sense among the powers of organized dentistry that only dentists are qualified to do the lion's share of dentistry. Beck, are there other plans proposed to fill the gap in dental care if not letting the hygienists or the dental therapists do it? Is there another plan that would be more pleasing to dentists? Otto, they have their own alternative model. It's kind of a health navigator who connects people with existing dentists, a community health worker type of model. The navigator helps divert people from ERs into existing dental offices, helps people make dental appointments, educates them about maintaining oral health and taking care of their children. But it's guiding people to existing dentists rather than expanding the dental workforce. Back. 
And if they don't have insurance, then it's not going to help very much. Auto. It's not as helpful. Unless there's a philanthropy or some kind of group that's raising money to pay for the care. Back. The separation between dental and medical care is pretty entrenched at this point. Do you think it can be overcome? That it should be overcome? That the two could be integrated a little more? Auto. Something that we was talked about in the medical world during the work going into the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was the triple aim, bending the cost curve toward prevention, expanding care more broadly and more cheaply, and creating a better quality of care. It's something that needs to be discussed in the oral health world, too, and I think it's being discussed more. Back. Do you think it would be like a parallel reform in dentistry, or would it be more integrating them back together somewhat? Otto. It seems like it's going to have to involve both. There's been work being done in this area. There have been efforts to put dental hygienists into these qualified federally, federally qualified health centers that are part of our public health safety net, which serve poor rural communities. It seems like it's capturing an increasing amount of attention from state lawmakers, governors, and public health officials who are interested in bringing costs down for all kinds of health care and seeing that these things show promise. They're saying we're spending too much on emergency rooms, we're spending too much on hospitalization for these preventable problems, so there are cost incentives to get more preventive and timely routine restorative care to people. And that is that, the history of the medical dental divide. Let's go on to the New York Times for an article by Wooden Yan, published on November 28, 2020. This is titled, Their Teeth Fell Out, Was It Another COVID-19 Consequence? Earlier this month, Farah Kameli popped a wintergreen breath mint in her mouth and noticed a strange sensation a bottom tooth wiggling against her tongue. Ms. Camille, 43, of Voorheesville, New York, had never lost an adult tooth. She touched the tooth to confirm it was loose, initially thinking the problem might be the mint. The next day, the tooth flew out of her mouth and into her hand. There was neither blood nor pain. Ms. Camille survived a bout with COVID-19 this spring and has joined an online support group as she has endured a slew of symptoms experienced by many other long haulers, brain fog, muscle aches, and nerve pain. There's no rigorous evidence yet that the infection can lead to tooth loss or related problems, but among members of her support group, she found others who also described teeth falling out, as well as sensitive gums and teeth turning gray or chipping. She and other survivors, unnerved by COVID's well-documented effects on the circulatory system, as well as symptoms such as swollen toes and hair loss, suspect a connection to tooth loss as well. But some dentists, citing a lack of data, are skeptical that COVID-19 alone could cause dental symptoms. It's extremely rare that teeth will literally fall out of their sockets, said Dr. David Okano, a periodontist at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. But existing dental problems may worsen as a result of COVID-19, he added, especially as patients recover from acute infections and contend with their long-term effects. And some experts say that doctors and dentists need to be open to such possibilities, especially because more than 47% of adults 30 years or older have some form of periodontal disease, including infections and inflammation of the gums and bone that surround teeth 
according to a 2012 report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We are now beginning to examine some of the bewildering and sometimes disabling symptoms that patients are suffering months after they've recovered from COVID, including these accounts of dental issues and teeth loss, said Dr. William W. Lee, President and Medical Director of the Angiogenesis Foundation, a nonprofit that studies the health and disease of blood vessels. While Ms. Camille had become more diligent about her dental care, she had a history of dental issues before contracting the coronavirus. When she went to the dentist the day after tooth came out, he found that her gums were not infected, but she had significant bone loss from when she used to smoke. He referred Ms. Camille to a specialist to handle a reconstruction. The dental procedure is likely to cost her just shy of $50,000. The same day Ms. Camille's tooth fell out, her partner went on Survivor Corps, a Facebook page for people who've lived through COVID-19. There, he found that Diana Berendt, the page's founder, was reporting that her 12-year-old son had lost one of his adult teeth, months after he had a mild case of COVID-19. Unlike Ms. Camille, Ms. Berendt's son had normal and healthy teeth with no underlying disease, according to his orthodontist. Others in the Facebook group have posted about teeth falling out without bleeding. One woman lost a tooth while eating ice cream. Eileen Luciano of Edison, New Jersey, had a top molar pop out in early November when she was flossing. That was the last thing that I thought would happen, that my teeth would fall out, Ms. Luciano said. Teeth falling out without any blood is unusual, Dr. Lee said, and provides a clue that there might be something going on with the blood vessels in the gums. The new coronavirus wreaks havoc by binding to the ACE2 protein, which is ubiquitous in the human body. Not only is it found in the lungs, but also on nerve and endothelial cells. Therefore, Dr. Lee says, it's possible that the virus has damaged the blood vessels that keep the teeth alive in COVID-19 survivors. That also may explain why those who have lost their teeth feel no pain. It's also possible that the widespread immune response known as a cytokine storm may be manifesting in the mouth. If a COVID long hauler's reaction is in the mouth, it's a defense mechanism against the virus, said Dr. Michael Scherer, a prosthodontist in Sonora, California. Other inflammatory health conditions such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes, he said, also correlate with gum disease in the same patients. Gum disease is very sensitive to hyperinflammatory reactions, and COVID long haulers certainly fall into that category, Dr. Scherer said. Patients may be bringing in new findings, and physicians and dentists need to cooperate on understanding the effects of long-term COVID-19 on teeth. For now, Ms. Camille hopes her story may serve as a cautionary tale. If people aren't taking the proper precautions to protect themselves from the coronavirus, they could be looking at something like this. We have now from Harvard Health blog of December 9, sorry, December 18th, 2019. This was posted by Tian Jiang, DMD and MED, titled Drills, Needles and Pain, Oh My, Coping with Dental Anxiety. For many people, going to the dentist is an unpleasant but manageable experience. For others, just the thought of going to the dentist causes severe anxiety, leading them to delay or avoid dental treatment. 
Unfortunately, this behavior can spiral into a vicious cycle of dental pain, health problems, worse anxiety, and more complex and costly dental procedures. If you experience dental anxiety or phobia, here are some tips to ensure you maintain your oral health and receive comfortable dental care. The best way to avoid complex dental procedures and pain is to regularly visit your dentist. Not only will your dentist diagnose problems and help you prevent future issues, but he or she will also help manage your oral health as part of your general health. Your mouth is the gateway to your body. For example, people with type 2 diabetes are more likely to have periodontitis, a type of bone and gum disease, which could lead to tooth loss. In fact, studies have shown that controlling diabetes can help control gum and bone health and vice versa. Many people fear the dentist because they are afraid of pain. There are several ways to manage this during and after dental treatment. Most commonly, dentists will use topical and local anesthesia. Topical anesthesia is a numbing gel that can help ease the insertion of a thin needle used to deliver local anesthesia. The local anesthesia will take effect within minutes, typically last for several hours, and numbs just the area that your dentist needs to complete the procedure. Furthermore, depending on the type of procedure, your dentist may advise one or more of the following to minimize pain and swelling after your visit. Ice, oral rinses, over-the-counter pain medication, such as ibuprofen or acetaminophen, or prescription medication. Following these directions is critical to your recovery. It's highly encouraged that you explore a combination of the following options to reduce dental anxiety prior to considering medications. Relaxation exercises such as focused breathing and meditation can successfully slow your heart rate and put you at ease. Many people find bringing distractions to the dental chair to be effective. Examples include headphones for music or podcasts and a stress relief ball that can be squeezed with your hands to release tension during the procedure. Additionally, some patients find comfort in bringing a friend or family member to the appointment. Another approach, cognitive behavioral therapy, aims to change both negative thoughts and actions. Consult your dentist or another healthcare professional to find out what option is best for you. There are several ways that your dentist can help reduce your anxiety with medications through different levels of sedation. Your dentist may prescribe anti-anxiety drugs, such as diazepam, that you can take one hour before a scheduled dental visit. Your dentist may also recommend conscious sedation, such as nitrous oxide or laughing gas, which can help calm nerves. You will still have control over your bodily functions, and this medication is applied only during the procedure. Lastly, general anesthesia, which puts you into a deep sleep, may be recommended for more invasive surgeries of the jaw or for those with special needs or severe anxiety that prevents routine care from being possible. And that is that for everything teeth. And of course, you can't bring a friend or family member with you during these COVID times, but otherwise that sounds like a pretty good suggestion. So I thank you for tuning in to Sound Body today. Stay well and come back next week for more healthy living ideas.